Hello and welcome to End Credits here on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. I'm your host, Adam A. Donaldson, and joining me in a bit will be Tim Phillips. Uh, I don't know if you've noticed, I changed my podcasting setup a bit here in uh, in the home office. Uh, <laughs> you know, 16 months into the pandemic, I thought maybe it was time to change things up. I mean, it's not a complete change up, I've just basically how altered how things are situated. I don't know how they sound. Perhaps they sound pretty good. Perhaps they sound terrible. I'll find out at the end of this recording. Anyway, so stay tuned for that. <laughs> and Credits is a local movie show for local movie fans. We are here every Wednesday at 3 p.m. to talk the latest in pop culture and review the newest movies, which this week will be the new post-apocalyptic romance fantasy, Love and Monsters, which you can now stream on Netflix. So, to begin with this week, we're going to continue on with our summer series, our series um, pay tribute to the great summer movie seasons of the past, and we are now up to 1985, which was a very busy summer, even though it kind of got a late start. But it was a very busy summer indeed. Uh, so I'm going to get right down to it because there's a lot of ground to cover and I have maybe 10, 12 minutes now. Okay, so starting on May 22nd, we get uh, Brewster's Millions, which is uh, the epic team up of Richard Pryor and John Candy. It's basically Richard Pryor is a baseball player who is told that he will inherit uh, millions and millions of dollars, but he has to basically... He's given a set amount of money that he has to spend um, by the end of this like thirty day period. Um, it's I, I think <laughs> it's hard to say if this exact story was told before, but I mean, when you think about it, like it's a mad, 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 mad world where it's kind of like these zany madcap comedies where um, people have to do kind of ludicrous things in order to achieve prize money or to win a prize, whatever it is. Um, anyway, that was kind of Richard Pryor's shot at this uh, comedic subgenre. It's kind of at the end, like, kind of the... I don't want to say the waning days of his popularity, but, I mean, this came a year? Two years after Superman 3, which kind of was, like, his bottoming out. Um, as At least as a movie star. As, 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 a, as a stand-up, he is still... He remains second to none. I think this was also originally supposed to be an Eddie Murphy vehicle, which, um... It kind of feels that way in the DNA, because this is still when Murphy was... Um, either he had just left SNL, or he was in his final days on SNL. I'd have to look that up. Also on this weekend, Rambo First Blood Part 2, um, which, you know, takes the original Rambo, which is kind of like a self-serious movie about... PTSD and living with the horrors of war and then turns Rambo into this sort of jingoistic thing where he has to go back into Vietnam and redeem the sins of, of America and the abandoned soldiers left behind. It's it, very jingoistic and very much of the sort of the Reaganite patriotism of the 80s. Again, weird given the tone of the initial Rambo movie. This same weekend, also this same weekend, you get the release of A Few to Kill, Tom, uh, Timothy Dalton's first and second to final 
James Bond movie. Uh, same thing for John Glenn, who's uh, who directed more um, James Bond movies than anyone. Um, kind of the entire 80s streak of Bond movies from Moonraker to A View to Kill were John Glenn joints. And um, so, I mean, this is also kind of the beginning of the end of uh, the Broccoli era. Albert R. Broccoli, who shepherded the franchise pretty much from the beginning to um, GoldenEye. GoldenEye was the last film where he was uh, properly credited, although I think he died either during production or shortly after production. Again, that's more homework. Um, on May 31st, you get Fletch. Uh, this is a big year for Chevy Chase. He had three movies, three starring vehicles. This was one of them. Um, Spies Like Us was another one, and another one will be mentioned shortly. Um, I mean, Fletch is an interesting product. This is like Chevy Chase kind of trying something a bit different. Um, I mean, it's still largely a comedy, but it, uh, there there are um, other more sort of broader things to it. It's also part thriller. It's also kind of a neo-noir. So Chevy Chase is kind of reaching. I mean, this is also kind of the zenith of his movie popularity. It kind of starts going downhill after 1985. Um, and, and, you know, with, I guess, Christmas Vacation in 89 is kind of like his his last big uh, cinematic success before there's kind of this long plateau till he turns up on Community again. On June 7th, we get Goonies, um, universally beloved by some, but it's also, you know, when you take in the next week with Daryl, which is the, the touching story of a robot boy, um, there's this kind of, like, youth adventure movement in the summer of 85, and Goonies, of course, is a very big part of that. Um, Spielberg also showing his dominance in the box office arena, and, uh, I mean, we'll see that with another movie coming up shortly, but, I mean, this is also the year Steven Spielberg started pivoting to sort of doing more adult things. He made The Color Purple in 1985, which wasn't isn't universally beloved, but it, it, it is a definite, distinct pivot from where he was just a couple of years earlier with E.T. Um, and writing and producing Poltergeist. And, I mean, also, he, I think he wrote the story for Goonies, if I remember correctly, and Christopher Columbus wrote the screenplay. Um, so you very much see in this year Spielberg tr struggling to pivot um, while at the same time leaning into his very commercial instincts at the same time. On June 21st, you get Cocoon, which is kind of a big... Uh, not a breakthrough for Ron Howard, but it also it, it, sort of his latest hit. He's coming off of Splash and, and Night Shift. So he's definitely making a name for himself as a director. Cocoon is kind of Spielberg-esque in its tone, with... Um, this group of old people who essentially discover a fountain of youth um, through aliens <laughs> who, who come to Earth to recover um, some of their kind who are... There's a whole background thing involving Atlantis and everything, but um, it's an interesting story about um, mortality and agedness, and you know, also kind of timely if you think about it, because, you know, what what's the biggest story coming out of COVID right now, but the effect of seniors and how they were, uh, you know, sort of sitting ducks in long-term care homes. Um, anyway, that, that, 
it might be worth rewatching Cocoon to try and see if you can take it through that lens. Also on June 21st, you get Return to Oz, which is the dark and disturbing sequel <laughs> to The Wizard of Oz. Um, directed by Walter Munch, who is a well-known editor and sound designer, Academy Award winner. He, he I think he won for The English Patient and a couple of other... I mean, he's very awarded, very nominated. This is his directorial debut. Um... So toxic, the reception for Return to Oz, he would never direct anything again. But it's it's gotten a cult mystique now because um, of just how dark it went and for a lot of the production design elements. And um, it, it is just this really funky, wild look at the world of Oz. Um, and also, like, what would happen to Dorothy if she comes back? Like, I went to this crazy world with golden roads and talking lions and you know naturally she went up in a assailant and in a sane asylum which is what happens at the beginning of return to oz um on june 26th we get pale rider uh kind of the prototype uh for unforgiven which eastwood would direct and win an oscar for later but i mean it's also very serious work um that uh he's putting his stamp on also because of his fame from the western genre he's clearly making a pivot here to try and say something much more serious about the genre about himself as an actor and, and as an artist than he would ever be allowed in some of those spaghetti westerns um interesting to note that pale rider is the most successful western of the 80s not that I'm sure that there's a lot of a competition, although Silverado was released later this, this year as well. So there were at least two Westerns released in 1985. On June 28th, we get St. Elmo's Fire, which uh, firmly establishes the uh, the so-called Brat Pack. So you get uh, Rob Lowe, Emilio Estevez, Mara Winningham, Judd Nelson, Andrew McCarthy, um, Ali Sheedy, Demi Moore... Uh, directed by Joel Schumacher, uh, you know, they kind of, this is kind of the ensemble, you know, in, a couple of weeks ago we talked about Diner, this is kind of like the Diner of 1985, where a lot of people who become very, very famous later on sort of get established here, they all are all together in one place. Uh, St. Elmo's Fire, very melodramatic, very, it's, it's very soap opera-esque. Um, I'm not sure I have ever had the wherewithal to revisit it since I watched it in high school. Anyway, it's definitely not Friends, although it's Friends-esque. It's in the Friends mold, anyway. On July 3rd, we get Back to the Future. That should really need no introduction, explanation, although it is <laughs> it is kind of funky to realize that if they were to remake Back to the Future today, um... The DeLorean would go back in time to 1990. 30 years in the pla 30 years in the past is 1990. Um, it was kind of a big deal when the 30th anniversary of Back to the Future came out, and it was like, if this movie happened today and somebody goes back to the past 30 years to meet their parents, it would be in 1985. So it's kind of really funky to think about. Um, but I mean, also kudos to whatever deal Robert Zemeckis and Bob Gale made that. <laughs> <laughs> Back to the Future cannot be remade because it would have been remade seven times by now uh, with a Back to the Future extended universe. Anyway, 
Uh, Red Sonja was also released that weekend. It was Robert Fleischer's follow-up to Conan the Destroyer, and also stars Arnold Schwarzenegger, albeit in a supporting role. So, it you know, keeping in the swords and sandals realm um, there for... Um, sorry, Richard Fleischer, forgot his name for a second. Uh, on July 10th, we get Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. Not the... Not everyone's favorite Mad Max, but uh, it's hard to ignore its its impact on popular culture. You get Explorers on July 12th, which again, although it stars teens, it kind of fits into this mold of kids' adventure, summertime fun kind of movies. Also, Joe Dante, who is also part of the Spielberg class, he had directed Gremlins the year before that. On July 19th, you get Day of the Dead, George Romero, um, the, kind of the, the last of his classic zombie trilogy also one of the most um complex um it, you know it, it's you're, you're catching everyone sort of mid-apocalypse or post-apocalypse literally post-apocalypse the apocalypse is over zombies rule and these people are just trying to sort of make it through to the end of the day uh every day it introduces a number of fascinating elements like zombies can learn and they have muscle memory and things you have this character bub who by the end of the film kind of instinctually understands his place in the the pecking order in the food chain as it were and um it's sort of uh fascinating to watch the development in, in this crazy character dr logan who everybody calls uh frankenstein um he's uh <laughs> kind of a an amoral uh character in the midst of the zombie apocalypse on july 26th you get black cauldron not the most beloved Disney animated movie, but I think it's one of the most creative. They're clearly playing with some dark tones and kind of loving it. You get John Hurt as, like, essentially the Darth Vader. <laughs> I mean, they, they, the Hornet King is, like, a character in this series of books that the, the film is based on. But they clearly are channeling Darth Vader and how he's portrayed. And you get John Hurt to voice him, which is terrific. It, you know, I, I, I love The Black Cauldron, and I'll have to stand it next to The Hunchback of Notre Dame for these Disney movies that go dark within the PG um, framework and are willing to, like, try and scare kids um, and get away from the songy and dancey stuff that, I mean, <laughs> the Disney renaissance would um, kind of uh, pick up on. Uh, five years later, with when you get Oliver and Company and the the Katzenberg era of Disney. Uh, where are we? So that brings us to August. So I'll go through some of the August stuff really quick. You get National Lampoon's European Vacation, which I mean I remember from my Zeller's days. If there was like a, one of the vacation movies that you always had more copies than interest from people in buying, it was National Lampoon's European Vacation. On August 2nd, you get Fright Night, you get Weird Science, you get Follow That Bird. <laughs> I remember Follow That Bird because I was um, an extra in the scene during the, the parade where uh, Big Bird kind of comes out into the parade and he's trying to escape the mean um, Child Protective Services bird who's trying to put him with a, a foster family and trying to take him away from Sesame Street. The plot is surprisingly complex given it's a Sesame Street movie, but it, it's a lot of fun. And uh, this scene was filmed in my hometown, Georgetown, just a few um, 
kilometers down the road. And so I always have a fondness for Fall that Burger because the, the, the scene is uh, it's just like them f- filming Big Bird kind of confusedly walking down the street in the middle of a parade. And, and I remember thinking, oh, that's... That's all they're doing. And I, remember, I also remember seeing that scene in the movie. I was like, oh, that's what's going on through the rest of this scene. Um, so in August 9th, you get Pee-wee's Big Adventure Summer Rental. August 23rd, you also get another double bill. You get Godzilla 1985, which is my introduction to Godzilla, as well as Teen Wolf. And then the summer wraps on August 30th of American Ninja. Uh, I wish I had more time to talk about the summer of 1985, but I don't. Before we get into the review, though, I am going to plug next week's show, which is our 200th episode spectacular. The entire panel is going to be here to take part. Uh, Stay tuned to the end of the show to hear what we're going to do. I just wanted to tee it up now before we go into the musical break. I don't know how you guys listen to the show, whether you, you know, maybe find out what the review is and then you pause and go watch it. Maybe you do. Maybe you're that obsessive. I don't know. Uh, I just, I don't have the time and money to do the market research for this show that I should. But anyway, we're going to take a musical break here. We're going to get Tim on the line and come back with a review of Love and Monsters. You are listening to End Credits here on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus, and community radio. Choose a god you think is bad. Cause my monsters are Take it easy. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Good. No. Take it easy. Bend over, man. That's it. That's it. Just stay very still. Okay, now. All good. On your way now. Older snows are nice. There can be nice ones? You can always tell them their eyes. And that was a clip from Love and Monsters. It's the new film from Michael Matthews, and it stars Dylan O'Brien, Jessica Henwick, Dan Ewing, Ariana Greenblatt, Ellen Holman, and Michael Rooker. So I'm now being joined on the line by Tim Phillips. Tim, how are you today? Doing well, Adam. Summer's coming. (laughs) <laughs> Looking forward to it. I have a feeling no more snow. Knock on wood. You wow. never know. 
It did Bold. snow once, like third week in May, I remember. So I'm hoping that doesn't happen. Bold prediction. Um, yeah. <laughs> don't want to put money on that just in case it goes sideways. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, it's uh, it's good. Nice weather. Nice today as we're recording. Uh, it's supposed to be a nice uh, week in general. Uh, so it's the perfect time to stay inside and watch Netflix. Uh, <laughs> so <laughs> uh, for this week's movie, we did Love and Monsters, and you pick this out of your hat, Tim. So why don't you start off by talking about why you wanted to discuss Love and Monsters? Yeah, Adam, I uh, saw it on Netflix. It looked like a fun movie. Uh, a few weeks ago, I think, think it was the number one movie in Canada on Netflix, so caught my eye um and i didn't know a whole lot about it but i uh knew it's supposed to be fun supposed to be some really really cool monsters in it and also i think a lot of people have been sort of reading into it even though the movie was made in like 2019 and it's been delayed that it uh sort of like has a bit of like a covid subtext to it i think that people Mm -hmm. can read into it nowadays um being you know trapped (laughs) <laughs> People are trapped underground. They can't go up to the surface because monsters will most likely get them. So kind of fits with, uh, you know, sort of a theme of today, a lot more extreme than probably what we're going through. But that's sort of, you know, you have to keep to yourself, keep in your clan and uh, mm-hmm. keep in your clan to protect yourself is kind of an interesting theme. Um, and yeah, it was a really, really fun movie. It didn't. I don't think it got too deep, but it it was it was a nice sort of nice romance with a lot of comedy and uh, some cool monsters. Which you know, it's fun sort of like escapist entertainment. Um, even though I guess if you read into it, you could think, uh, "Wow, this is uh, similar to what we're going through today." But uh, didn't affect me too much on that level. Um, really fun flick. I would. I'd recommend anybody who just wants to have a fun time for hour and a half or so, hour forty minutes. Hmm. Yeah. The the um like the COVID analogy vibes were very very strong, and again, it's it, like it was not intentional because, as you said, it was it was made before um, the pandemic, but just the whole thing about staying with your colony. Uh, going outside to get supplies is the most dangerous thing. Staying, you know, in your underground bunkers, sealed up, cut off from the world, keeping within your own community. Um, it, and, you know, the, the dangers outside, too, because the monsters aren't like aliens or anything. They're like mutated Earth creatures. So, you know, things like uh, like there's a monster toad that you meet at one point. There's a monster snail that you meet at one point. There's like a monster millipede. So it's like all these like typical, th- all these things we don't typically think of as threats all of a sudden becoming threats. Kind of like a um, illness that presents as kind of like the common cold, but then, you know, is common cold on steroids. <laughs> so it's, um, you know, all of this combined um it's almost like it's almost like the movie was made for viewing in april 2021 uh when it came out on netflix or may 2021 is when we watched it so it's it's like you probably couldn't have designed a more perfect movie to watch right now if you were trying and uh that's kind of impressive 
just like just on like the surface level because i mean this the as you said the movie isn't too terribly deep but it is impressive how on the nose it kind of feels for sure and yeah i think uh when the news gets worse or worse or more uncertain with covid i think this movie would resonate more and more um just because it's like yeah they're trapped underground because of these mutated insects animals everything that's around on earth because of this uh event that happened with like rockets came back to earth some and then everything became mutated and grew in size like hundreds of times bigger like toads are hundreds of times bigger and they're eating people um so and people can't can't get up to the surface can't can't go about their lives they're losing loved ones mm-hmm. um you know the two or the protagonist and his love interest they both lost their parents from from the mutant creatures killed their parents so it's it's something like yeah it, it does fit with today and unfortunately if the news were to get worse i think with like variants or anything going on then um it, it would uh resonate even more mm-hmm. um so it's just a movie that sort of found its time i think even though <laughs> like we said it was a couple years old uh and uh but besides that though it really it's it's really like this adventure this this boy who uh you know young man who who uh you know what wants to find the, his love interest who he was separated from seven years ago when this event all happened they had to go with their respective families and and never saw each other again and he uh reaches out through this sort of like primitive radio system they have that these different colonies have so they can communicate and finds after going through i think he said like 90 of them finds which one she's in <laughs> and uh and uh decides even though it's you know well established at the start he has like no self defense skills he's yeah. he's he's like the cook for his colony um there's a breach where was it an ant or something this mutated ant or something yeah, I forget yeah. what it comes down and and he's face to face with it with a with a gun but he can't shoot it you know and uh it just shows like how is he going to survive um cuz cuz the people in his colony say the hunting parties that go up to the surface they they're lucky to last a few days and it's going to take him 7 days to get to to, to his f- former girlfriend Amy's colony so he mm-hmm. uh he uh does it and then predictably <laughs> predictably he doesn't that. die in 10 minutes he doesn't die <laughs> he he finds a way he finds some a couple people that uh, older man and a, a young girl who mentor him on the ways mm. to to get by on the surface and he gets there um so yeah it's uh it's fun yeah like it's predictable in that sense right you know like things are gonna work out probably <laughs> but uh yeah that, that works for the tone of the movie because if it went and went if it went in a darker <laughs> yeah dar- darker way it would become less popular entertainment more maybe like a cult movie 30 years from now like yeah it's not it's not Bambi versus godzilla <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh 
Um, yeah, the, the tone of the movie, I think, is pretty good. It doesn't shy away from, like, the dark, sort of the dark underpinnings of, you know, uh, the dangers of the world or the fact that everybody has lost friends and family. Um, you, you know, the scene where you see the flashback of Joel, the the lead character, when you see uh, when his parents are, are killed, um, it's pretty harrowing. Um, but what one of the things I found with this movie and I and I think a lot about The Walking Dead because I mean The Walking Dead is essentially a move uh, a TV show where people are running from monsters walking from place to place trying to survive um one of the things that really turned me off that show was just that the constant sense of nihilism the constant sense of like Ever, like the odds are great that everyone you are going to meet are terrible that there's no good people left even the heroes um and and i think one of the things this movie does well is have sort of like a more optimistic which again falls well into the sort of the post-covid viewing of this which is that we know that um when the pandemic came, society didn't fall apart and a lot of people banded together and started working together and um, essential goodness won out over, um, you know, self, you know, not enlightened self-interest, destructive self-interest, which uh, sort of the the walking dead kind of revels in but i mean a lot of the people joel meets along the way are essentially good are they cautious yes but um they are essentially uh good people and i i did like that bit with uh michael rooker and the, and the young girl um <laughs> they're, they're kind of like sardonic but uh they they also mean very well um by by taking joel into the wing and also offering joel encouragement which i i've enjoyed because obviously joel is um kind of in the mold of like the Jesse Eisenberg character from uh Zombieland but uh he also has obvious skills like the, he he draws the various creatures and um makes annotations about their defenses and their weaknesses and and how best to avoid them so he's like been he's like while he's on this like perilous trip he's also documenting it which you know may not be the immediate survival skill that comes to mind but probably fairly essential if you're you know exploring a strange new world like what plant is poisonous and what plant can heal you if you <laughs> happen to uh be infected by a toxin you know what does this kind of creature look like where does it live how does it hide uh how might it kill you kind of essential stuff so i mean even even though the character is um well let, uh, let's say not the most obvious hero type for the post-apocalyptic post-apocalyptic environment um the script makes it clear that um he he's you know he has obvious skills perhaps not the obvious survival skills but i mean um there's also more than just being able to be good at killing stuff which which also the film um does very well and you know making sure that it's not just creating creatures who are dangerous but showing you creatures that are um Perhaps not harmless, but um, <laughs> the, the creatures that aren't openly hostile, yeah. and and um, yeah, the the world building is is just really great in that way. It it's it takes a lot of care to to build the world. It's it, it it's not just something that the design team slapped together, which I really appreciated. 
Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, the lead character, when you're talking about him uh, documenting everything and bringing together like a guide for survival, that was really cool too. And you see that towards the end and how, how that comes in handy, how he, how him, him being so aware and being in tune with what's happening. And like you said, not all the monsters and they, they make that very clear at near the end. Like not all the monsters are out to just destroy and eat up any humans they see, which, which is interesting. Um, Mm -hmm. Maybe they could have mentioned that a little more earlier on too. (laughs) I don't, because like it's like he's on a death trip here, and then all of a sudden, <laughs> all of a sudden, right when he's, <laughs> where you think, okay, now they're really in trouble. Oh, this this one, mm-hmm. this one is a sensitive monster, right? You know, <laughs> it it's been abused, so you understand it, and then you feel empathy for that monster. But it's, uh, yeah, it's it kind of kind of shifts your your thinking for the monsters and. Which is, I guess, adds adds a little bit, a little bit of variety to the film. But you know, at the mm-hmm. same time, and it's like you you lose kind of sometimes in in it too. I sort of lost that sense of danger, like really feeling like okay, he's he could get eaten at any time. You know, <laughs> right? It's like a movie that just comes to mind now. It's completely different movies, but you think like a movie like nineteen seventeen, right? Mm-hmm. World War One. Okay, right. they're going across they they could die at any time right like and and certain people do die during it and (laughs) you know this could have it's like it's the same thing so you expect okay if there's these ravenous monsters all around all throughout earth and 95 percent of the population is dead because they've been eaten by these these things then you think it'd be more of a more more consistent danger for him and and there's some moments where he's in danger but as you know, like he's the hero, he's going to get through it, which is fine. It's kind of like what you sign off for when you watch the movie, but it kind of loses some tension in spots. But right. one thing I did like is the character, like you're sort of mentioning, he's a very, very sarcastic character. <laughs> um, and I think that fits, right? Because even like with what we're going through now, like with COVID, you see you know, younger people, people have grown up on social media. There's still a lot of sarcasm and stuff, even when we're in the most dire of circumstances or, or humor, trying to make the situation better through, through humor. And, and, and he's like that throughout very self-deprecating. And, uh, I, I thought I, I appreciated that as opposed to that, you know, maybe a movie from the eighties where he's just the hero and he's just, you know, he's taking on these monsters, um, and the monsters represent communism or something. I don't know. Like, <laughs> you know, this, this, yeah, this is more like, okay, this is just something strange has happened in the world. Now I have to deal with it, you know? And if, uh, if this was made in the eighties, the monsters would definitely represent communism because the, the rocket, the, the rocket fuel that created the mutants would have definitely been from the, uh, the Soviet rockets and not from the American rockets because of, you know, lapse Soviet safety standards. But yeah, uh, that's, that's definitely, <laughs> that would definitely be the tone. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, Dylan O'Brien plays Joel. Um, have you have you watched the Maze Runner movies at all? No, I haven't. Because I think that's what people 
that or Teen Wolf. Those are kind of like his the two things he's most famous for. But I haven't seen Teen Wolf, uh, the TV show, not the the '80s movie. Um, but I have I have seen the Maze Runner movies. I did enjoy the Maze Runner movies uh, surprisingly uh, quite a bit. Um, but he is very he's a very charming lead and granted he's more intense in the the maze runner movies which is like a a kind of a more serious post-apocalyptic movie series but um he's able to play sort of dry and uh sarcastic very well but um he's a really great i maybe saying he's really great is you know we we should see a bit more evidence before making uh indictments but the, he he has proven himself very capable of leading a movie whether that's like in an ensemble like the maze runner movies or in something like this where he is one on one with people or one on two with people like with the, the 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 michael rooker sequence or if he's you know alone with the dog and um or facing off against like some one of the, the cgi beasties it's he he is a very capable very engaging leading man and um love and monsters proved that again and it turned out to be a great sort of um showcase for him that he, he because in, in the maze runner movies he's more um proactive shall we say <laughs> he's not as reactive but he, he's able to he, he's able to work both both channels so he's able to be the proactive action-oriented hero but he's also able to be like the the more down-to-earth more um reactive um i, I guess getting by by the skin of his teeth kind of hero so he he's able to he, he manages to work both channels and so uh uh, my my esteem for Dylan O'Brien has only gone up watching this. Yeah, I thought I thought he did a did a fine job, and I I think of like the term, and it's maybe more in the past seventies and stuff like anti-hero. He, mm. Like he's not really an anti-hero because like like everything he's doing is good, really. <laughs> so he's like a good person, <laughs> but he he's got that sort of anti-hero way of talking or referring the the stuff where he's you know more like like you're saying like he's sarcastic and he's just more dry about the whole situation which is which is fun to watch and we've seen that in obviously other other adventure films and mm-hmm. for years now but um i think he does a really good job with that he's a good luck good looking young man i'm sure he'll continue to have <laughs> get work and stuff and he he did he, he did well in this and then the uh, his love interest mm-hmm. uh, amy, amy she was really good she didn't have as much screen time as early on pre monster apocalypse and then <laughs> at the end at the end uh when he reunites in her colony there um but she does she does a really excellent job too um and it's it, it's interesting too the whole sort of the young romance component to it as well right um he's going he's risking life and limb going seven days to see the love of his life from seven years ago when they were 17 years old and uh as anyone would know a lot changes between 17 and 24 Mm -hmm. um even if you're in a colony maybe even more so if you're like in close quarters a colony with a tight group of people Um, right so and one of the things I found interesting is that, you know, Amy's calling, she's kind of the leader, like she's 
um, kind of like one of the only young people, if not the only young pe- person in in a colony of uh, of seniors. So it kind of falls to her to, um, I get <laughs> again. Here's this COVID <laughs> reference of like one caretaker for a whole. Um, group of seniors <laughs> but uh it, it you know it, it shows that you know whereas joel's kind of like the you know the 10th man out of nine in in his colony um he jessica henwick's uh amy is um you know probably had to do a little bit more growing up as the leader of her colony so it's it's an interesting dynamic yeah and it's that sort of romantic c- comedy um you know device where oh it's uh he's not good enough for her in a way right like she's Mm -hmm. she's a natural born leader she's and he's he's doing some things at his colonies the cook and everything but he's not really (laughs) like this hero this alpha male that um you'd think and then when that yacht comes at the end with the australian he's real alpha male so you can see him as getting between that past romance because you think, Oh, maybe Amy's got her eye on him. He's, he's a hero as well. A leader he comes across that way. He's um, got a yacht. He's got a yacht too. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Um, it's interesting. I mean, it's not addressed in the film, but you know, that everybody else in Joel's colony has kind of hooked up. So like at some point there was one woman left and two men left and, he was the odd man out, so you gotta. Uh, that that's kind of in the back of your head the whole time. It's like, how does that feel to be like the literally the odd man out at the end? But I mean, there's also one of the things I did appreciate too is when, when he gets to Amy's colonies, he gets on the radio to try and um, to, to tell his old colony that he made it and he's alive, and he 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 get, he, he finds this map that they give him at the beginning and he, he looks at the back of it, which he had never looked at before. And are all these like messages of, of good luck and we love you and well wishes. And I mean, that's a, that's a really great sort of emotional moment as well that, you know, um, there's more to life than, <laughs> than romance, yeah. I guess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like he has this great group of friends and it's like, he's striving for something else like the grass is greener right yeah, so right, right. he's going he, he's t- risking life and limb and this odd stacked against him you would think given his survival skills and he's gonna have to be on the surface for seven days mm-hmm. um, the grass is always greener even in the apocalypse yeah exactly <laughs> and uh yeah and, and yeah it's uh it's a good like i could see this story almost being like a young adult novel or something in a way right like it's yeah sort of, it, it, it but it's fun it's fun it's it's you know it's sort of like an earnest romance here between the two and um or especially from what his point of view is um and and it, it's a lot of fun it's uh it's kind of weird because yeah it's kind of it would normally be escapist entertainment but given the context mm-hmm. and where how we're living now it's kind of it's got this added uh added dimension to it but might I not have been wonder, intentional i do wonder how this would go down in if, if there had been no covid pandemic and you, you were just like going to the theater to watch i mean as originally intended it was going to be a theatrical release but then 
uh, stuff happened. And I do wonder how, if, if there would be this sort of like warmthful embrace of, of love and monsters, it'd be just like, you know, like you said, it's like, ew, it feels like a YA novel. Uh, <laughs> but e- even though it's not, though, like uh, Brian Dutfield uh, wrote this uh, like on spec. It's, it was a spec script. Um, and people may recognize him from The Babysitter, which is another Netflix movie. Um, not exactly like this, but kind of similar in tone because it's also about sort of like a nebbish uh in that in that in that movie, I think the the hero is like thirteen, fourteen years old, but he still has a babysitter. So he's like this kind of nebbish character who doesn't want to get into danger, doesn't um, you know, isn't the alpha male type, but at, at the same time, he kind of has this very um, romantic kind of uh, I don't know, like like not necessarily um, in in a real romance sense but in like sort of like the classical sense the this romantic feeling about his babysitter which um oh what's her name i can't remember her name i'll have to look it up but um you know he he kind of has this kind of same feeling about his babysitter that um that it, uh, joel has about amy through the film uh Samara Weaving that's right Samara Weaving plays the babysitter I was going to say Sasha Ronan but that's a, an entirely different actress but <laughs> um <laughs> but you know so there there are a lot of those commonalities that, you know throughout the course of the film the hero finds out he's more capable than he he might have otherwise thought again facing monsters not necessarily the similar monsters uh to this film but you know people monsters people who are monstrous so um you know uh, Brian Dutfield definitely has, um, I, I guess, a type, shall we say? Um, that's not, not not necessarily a bad thing because I do think there's there is uh, Love and Monsters is a significantly different film. It's it's more of an adventure and not a horror movie. But it, um, I also think that Michael Matthews brings a lot to it. I think he made a lot a lot of the the director Michael Matthews. He makes a lot of really smart decisions like shooting this in the real world as much as possible everything has a real like nice tactile feel um he didn't do the thing like like m night Shyamalan did in after earth which is like i'm gonna create a whole new world when green screen and cg it's like no let's go out into the real world like how different would it really be um and and so so everything has a very real feeling to it which ultimately helps sell the the giant crabs and the mm-hmm. the giant worms and things. So it it just all around. I I I I I struggled with how how much to separate like real feelings about viewing this in the <laughs> through the pandemic lens. But I I think I think it probably stands out or uh, or stands up artistically on its own without it. But I mean we'll never know for sure. But I I think that there's there's a lot of, a lot that's going on with this movie that's fairly positive. Um, even without looking at it through the pandemic lens. Yeah, I, I'd, I'd say so. Um, like you're saying, it's the actual locations. That's really cool because you've got like yeah. mountains, you've got like forests, you've, and then you have a beach at the end there. It's, and then the monsters. It's like, yeah, this is how they would look on land. This is what what they would look like. It, not, you know, it's not. You can tell it wasn't like like you're saying just 100 percent cgi right um mm-hmm. and it was cool i think the movie 
the movie was also nominated for an Oscar for visual effects. So mm. that's cool. I I would say I, there's not a lot of there wasn't a lot of stiff competition this year. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I was mean, thinking, it, yeah. yeah, it's cool. It was nominated. I. <laughs> think there must be something better than it i liked it but you know <laughs> i mean tenant won the oscar for best visual effects and, and tenant's like one of those movies where they did like so much practically that you you're really hard pressed to find the vfx in it so i mean it it, it was a i mean in so much as people are talking about what what a weak year it was for like the, the pickings for the oscars like the visual effects category was the like weakest pickings of of that category like there was no marvel stuff there was no <laughs> dceu stuff there was no star wars um so it it's uh they they were really digging there let's just say <laughs> <laughs> not to say that the visual effects in love and monsters are terrible but it just you know i i i i find it, in in a 2020 year where the pandemic doesn't happen i find it hard to believe that love and monsters gets that uh, that that distinction of being an Oscar-nominated movie. You don't think the giant toad should have won it for them? Just the. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> you know, the toad wasn't my favorite monster. I love I love the big snail, um, and, and I, I I like the big crab. Uh, I mean, I you know, but it, honestly, the best creature in it was the dog. Um, which wasn't CG at all. It was like a real trained dog. Um, like the dog had character. It had uh, motivation. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the dog was uh, like essential to the plot. Like the, the, there's a, a thing that the dog um, points out to Joel at one point that becomes essential to the plot later. So there's like that kind of like the dog is not just window dressing. The dog is a yeah. full blooded character in the film. Yeah, we and, haven't talked uh, about the dog till now. <laughs> Dog I know. Name's boy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's and you know he's he's he even he has a relic of like the old world, um and yeah it's it's uh it's fascinating it um well maybe not fascinating but it just you know the the dog is a full blooded character which which I appreciated it wasn't just like something that can be in danger all the time but. Um, and it, it was a true partnership as well. Joel helped the dog. The dog helped Joel. So it's a boy and his dog. As a boy, it's a tale of a boy and his dog, essentially. Yeah, yeah it's uh, that's another appeal for it. The dog, <laughs> sweet dog, that really like yeah saves saves Joel that first time they meet saves his life. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, and then saves his life a couple of times. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a really good character and then uh, they have a fight at the end of the second act that and then there's there's a big heroic moment of of boys return in the third act it's it's um i you know the more i talk about it the more i appreciate it like the, the dog had an arc and that's hard to do because dogs are notoriously difficult to work with in movies yeah <laughs> dogs are, should be dogs and monsters right because <laughs> <laughs> and i think there is there used to be an award for like best animal and like tv and on in movies i would i would say boy should be nominated for that for sure you know um, i think you're right i think that is one of those like oscars that they stopped giving out like after 1947 like with like best choreography and 
um, like best talkie and like separating it from best talkie. And best, <laughs> it's it's something it's something they don't that they discovered. You know, there really wasn't a lot of competition for anymore. Um, yeah, but I, maybe they should bring it back. Um, <laughs> best supporting canine. Best, yeah, best supporting animal, and uh, it would be the dog from from Love and Monsters, and um, I don't know. Can't think. Of <laughs> Can't really think of anything Monkey else. Monkey from I don't know. Uh, yeah, the um, Godzilla from Godzilla versus Kong. I don't know. That probably seems like. That that seems like the category kind of getting away from if you're nominating CGI creatures. Anyway, Godzilla uh, was this year, right? Was it? Yeah, no, that was a couple of that was last month. Godzilla versus Kong came out. Yeah. Oh, okay. So it couldn't be up for visual effects. Uh, no, that would be for next year's. Uh, I mean, I again, I think as sort of we don't, we don't know anything about movie theaters opening here yet. But I know that movie theaters are opening more and more in the states, and um, yeah, so there. I mean, so there will be better competition in the VFX category next year. Um, it'll be interesting to see <laughs> how much competition because who who knows what's going to happen between now and then. Will there even be an Oscars at all? I don't know. They already canceled the Golden Globes. <gasps> yes, that's very true. The Maybe Globes, they'll... Globes are gone. Though, of course, I mean, that, I mean, talk about things that we should have gotten rid of a long time ago, but that's, that's another story. Uh, Tim, if people want to talk about Hollywood institutions to bring back or get rid of, how can people find you on the internet? (laughs) Find me a flash in the deadpan and let me know what your favorite animals are in film history and we'll go from there. It'd be nice to, yeah, there's some great roles by animals, including boy in this film. So, uh, mm-hmm. send me your thoughts, flash in the deadpan online. And that's it for this week's show. We hope you liked it. And if you want to listen to it again, you can find it on our website at endcreditsradioshow.com. Download it on the Guelph Politicast channel every Friday at Podbean or get it through your favorite podcast app at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. While you're on Spotify, get the playlist for most of the music that you hear on End Credits. Just go to Spotify and search for End Credits on CFRU. You can find us on social media on Facebook at End Credits Radio Show and on Twitter at End Credits Radio. And a programming note, next week is our 200th episode spectacular. So the whole gang will be here. We are going to do the top five of the show so the top five movies uh that everyone has reviewed on the show and so that's going to be a lot of fun stay tuned for that next week in the meantime i will be back here on cfru tomorrow at 5 p.m for news and politics on open sources guelph and that is with scotty hertz in the meantime i'm on twitter and instagram at adam a donaldson and you can check out my news and politics site at guelphpolitico.ca And stay tuned for more great programming here on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. We'll be back next Wednesday at 3 p.m. for our 200th episode spectacular of End Credits. And we will see you then.